Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon, and welcome to this special lecture at Gresham College on the history of synagogue music in London. At the outset, I should warn you that I've set myself quite a formidable task in covering 365 years of musical history in a multiplicity of different Jewish traditions in the space of a single hour. And of necessity, this will mean that no single topic in this lecture will be given much more than a brief introduction and a musical flavor of its unique character. Nonetheless, I hope that by the end of this session, I should have been able to give you a sense of the beauty and variety of ways in which music is used to express prayer in the various Jewish traditions and of the importance that music holds in the expression of faith for a community which has been part and parcel of the life of the City of London since the time at which Gresham College was founded. For although the historical record states that it is it was the year 1656 in which Oliver Cromwell authorised Jews to reside and worship in England for the first time since King Edward I's Edict of Expulsion in 1290. In point of fact, the synagogue established in Creechurch Lane in the east end of the city of London was in part founded by Muranos already living in London. Murano is a pejorative term for those Jews hailing primarily from the Iberian Peninsula, who had ostensibly converted to Christianity in order to avoid expulsion and harassment by the agents of the Spanish Inquisition, but who maintained their Jewish identity and religious practices in secret. The earliest direct reference to the style of musical liturgical practice in this tiny synagogue, hidden from view and accessible only to members and invited guests for fear of persecution, comes from a letter written by Mr. John Greenhalge in 1662, describing his visit to observe a Sabbath morning service. Although written from the inexpert perspective of a non-musician, unfamiliar with the format and structure of Jewish worship, it nonetheless provides a fascinating insight into the practices of a community in its infancy. Greenhalge attests to the importance placed on orderly and musical worship by the officers of the congregation. He writes, their chief ruler was a very rich merchant, a big, black, fierce, and stern man, whom I perceived they stand in as reverential awe as boys to a master. For when any left singing upon their books and talked, or that some were out of tune, he did call aloud with a barbarous thundering voice and knocked on the high desk with his fist that all sounded again. Later in the letter, Greenhalge remarks that during the early part of the service, there were two or three composed hymns, which they sang very melodiously, even Samuel Pepys, who described in his diary his own visit to the same synagogue the following year in far briefer terms, noted that their service was all in a singing way. Both Greenhalge and Pepys were witness to prayer services conducted in what has become known today as the Spanish and Portuguese Rite, which is still practiced in Bevis Marks Synagogue, which was opened in 1701 around the corner from the smaller synagogue in Cree Church Lane as its much larger successor. The adherents of this tradition were Sephardi Jews, meaning those whose ancestry was originally from the Iberian Peninsula, Moranos, in some cases from families who had been living as secret Jews for well over a century, with no Jewish congregational life, limited Jewish education, and on a constant threat of discovery by the Inquisition. Eventually, many of these so-called secret Jews left Iberia to live, to live in countries with far more welcoming attitudes towards Jews, such as Protestant Holland, where they formed a Jewish community which provided many of the original members of the tiny London community. Musically speaking, their tastes were highly influenced by the non-Jewish music, both sacred and secular, which had become their formative experience of musical expression. Hence, the chanting and singing, which would, have been, which would have constituted the musical elements of the services witnessed by Greenhalge and Pepys, whilst deriving in part from the Mediterranean Sephardi chants taught to them by ministers sent from those communities, would have exhibited a definite Western accent, characterized by the exclusive use of the major and minor musical modes, which we have in Western music, rather than the more complicated tonal systems favored by their Arab-influenced co-religionists. We can get a flavor of this style of chant from the following recording, which was made in 1958 by the cantor Reverend Eliezer Abinun, together with the members of the congregation of Bevis Marks Synagogue, singing in unison 
one of the traditional melodies of the community, in this case, one of the penitential prayers from the Day of Atonement. Whilst the first formal synagogue opened following the Cromwellian readmission of the Jews to England was Sephardi, as we discussed, the other great strand of the Jewish people, the Ashkenazim, was represented in London from the beginning. Initially, the Ashkenazi Jews, that is, those who originated from Germany and Central Europe, had no place of worship of their own, but their numbers soon increased, and by 1690, the first Ashkenazi congregation had come into existence in Duke's Place, literally around the corner from the Sephardi synagogue. In 1722, the congregation opened their purpose-built sanctuary, now known as the Great Synagogue, which maintained the extremely close proximity to its new Sephardi counterpart on Bevis Marks, and which stood for nearly 220 years until it was destroyed by an air raid in 1941. Ashkenazi liturgical practice falls into two broad categories, the Western and the Eastern European traditions. Musically speaking, both strands use a system known as nusach, which is a term which encompasses a particular musical mode or scale, as well as certain set modulations and particular musical phrases or cadences. There is a set nusach for each different service on weekdays, Sabbaths, festivals, high holy days, and other special occasions. Unlike the Spanish and Portuguese Sephardi rite, these Ashkenazi musical modes do not usually coincide with a pure major or minor scale of the Western classical variety. Another major difference is that whilst the Sephardi cantor must reproduce the chant of the prayer services exactly as he's learnt them from his teacher, with very little latitude for variation, the Ashkenazi cantor is expected to improvise freely within the appropriate nusach for the service, in question, while still remaining within the defined musical characteristics of that nusach. The Eastern Ashkenazi tradition, about which we shall speak more a little later on, places a significant emphasis on the musical, vocal, and improvisational skills of its cantors, whereas the Western tradition, into which category the initial Ashkenazi community of London fell, places a much greater emphasis on congregational melodies and composed tunes. Many of these melodies are specific to particular festivals or occasions in the Jewish calendar, and therefore lend each date of note a musical flavor and character all of its own. A good example of this is the following melody for the Kaddish, a prayer which marks the end of a particular section of the service. This Kaddish melody is sung by the cantor immediately following the reading of the portion from the Torah, the morning service on the three pilgrimage festivals. Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. The melody is a traditional one of German origin, which was already known as part of the tradition by 1815, at least as early as 1815, when it was incorporated by Isaac Nathan as part of his Hebrew Melodies collection, set to a new English text composed by Lord Byron. But here we hear the original version.
The first century of the great synagogue's existence saw it engage a number of respected cantors, some of whom also achieved musical distinction outside the sacred sphere. Perhaps the most famous of these was Maya Lyon, known better by his Italianized stage name, Michael Leone. At the time of his engagement in 1767, the musical structure of the prayer services in most Western Ashkenazi congregations had expanded from just the cantor chanting on his own to encompass two accompanying singers, a mashorer, or high singer, usually a boy treble, sometimes a tenor, and a bassista, or bass. These two extra singers would provide a basic, often extemporized harmonic backing to the singing of the cantor in lieu of instrumental accompaniment, which is forbidden in Orthodox worship on the Sabbath and holy days, and would occasionally provide the vocal diversions to allow the cantor to rest, to rest his voice during the longer or more vocally and physically demanding services, such as those on the Day of Atonement. The musical character of the items which have come down, from us, come down to us from this period reveal a significant element of borrowing from the Rococo style, with florid vocal lines, significant use of melisma and word repetition, and not always with a great regard for the traditional nusach or melody applicable to the prayer being intoned. No doubt, this use of secular musical style appealed to the congregants of these synagogues at the time. But the virtuoso vocal character and great variety of melodies employed by the cantors of this period may also have had another purpose. In the synagogue music collection of cantor Aaron Beer, who held a position in Berlin from 1765, and whose collection includes several items composed by Maya Lyon, Beer writes of his intention that each of these melodies be sung no more than once a year. He writes, if a person hear a tune but once a year, it will be impossible for him to sing with the cantor during the service, and therefore he will not be able to confuse the cantor. It has become a plague to the cantors to have the members of the congregation join the song. I wonder how many modern congregations would stand for that sort of attitude from its cantors. Perhaps they were different in those days, and perhaps they were more the same than we care to admit. Maya Lyon, who you see here in one of his opera roles, was originally appointed to the role of soprano mashorer at the Great Synagogue at a salary of £40 per annum, but his fine vocal qualities soon brought him patronage and wider fame, and he was able to forge a dual career as synagogue cantor at the Great Synagogue and opera singer at Covent Garden Theatre. Undoubtedly, his most enduring contribution was to the sphere of sacred music, in the form of his fine melody for the hymn Yigdal, which is based on Maimonides' 13 Principles of Faith, and is used to close the Sabbath evening service on Friday nights. His composition so impressed the Wesleyan minister, Thomas Olivers, that he wrote a Christian hymn, The God of Abraham Prays, to be sung to this specific melody, which he credited to its composer, Leone, by name. The melody itself has gained lasting popularity in both the Christian and Jewish religions, and is nowadays used every Friday evening in British synagogues, which follow the United Synagogue tradition, the present-day successor body to the Great Synagogue. <laughs> quarter of the 19th century, by that time, both the great synagogue, which had by this point spawned several breakaway Ashkenazi congregations, and Bevis Marx, which had not, were facing a similar crisis originating from within their own congregations. During this period, there were increasingly insistent calls 
from discontented groups of congregants in both synagogues for elements of the services to be reformed along what were regarded as more modern lines. This lobbying became more insistent in 1836 when a group of members of the, members of the Sephardi congregation petitioned the Mahamad, the board of management, for the introduction into the service of such alterations and modifications as were in line with of the changes introduced in the Reform Synagogue in Hamburg and other places. There were a number of specific areas which were of concern to those pressing for such changes, including the shortening of the overall length of the prayers, starting the services at a later hour on Sabbath mornings, and the introduction of a choir. These demands did not fall entirely on deaf ears, although the moderate changes introduced by the Muhammad at this time would not, in the end, be enough to satisfy the group of congregants concerned, of which more later. In regard to the demand for the introduction of a choir, scholars believe that this came about in part as a reaction to what the congregants in question would have regarded as the unfavorable comparison between the perceived decorum of church services which were attended on Sundays by many Jews, especially those of significant financial means and business interests, as a way of gaining social acceptance with their non-Jewish peers, and the perceived lack of decorum, on the other hand, in the Sabbath services of Bevis Marx. The latter may well be imagined by anyone who's visited this synagogue, bearing in mind its large size, echoing acoustic, the fact that significant portions of the service are sung not by the cantor alone, but by the entire congregation together in unison. The large space over which the congregants are spread in the synagogue would only have made more elusive the already unachievable goal of everybody singing in time with each other in the absence of a central musical leadership. The suggestion of introducing a choir, therefore, seems to have found favor with the gentlemen of the Muhammad, and in their annual meeting of the, at the end of 1837, the Board of Elders, the senior governing body of the congregation, approved steps taken by the Muhammad to promote order and solemnity in our religious worship. The steps in question consisted of the establishment of a choir to chant certain portions of the prayers. That the initial function of the choir was primarily to lead the congregation in those sections of the prayers which were sung by them rather than by the cantor, as indeed is the case in the present day, this fact may be inferred from the fact that during the next few months, there were, the congregational records refer to a number of interruptions to the choir's discharge of its function, such that the Board of Elders was obliged to urge the congregation to cooperate. By the end of 1838, the choir committee reported that the choir had been established with six paid choristers and ten boys from the public schools. The choir's first professional choirmaster had been appointed in the person of Mr. Moss at a salary of 20 pounds per annum. The original music composed by Moss for the choir still forms a part of its repertoire down to the present day, as exemplified by his setting of Psalm 150, which is reserved for use on the festival of Simchat Torah, which marks the end of the annual cycle of the reading of the Torah, and for the following Sabbath, which marks the beginning of the new cycle. Over the next four decades, the Bevis Marx Choir went through a number of short-lived choir masters, not all of whom had easy relationships with the congregation in general or with the Muhammad in particular. 
This unsettled period came to a conclusion with the appointment of Elias Robert Yeshurun in 1881, who held the post until his death in 1933. To Yeshurun can be attributed the organization of the congregation's liturgical music and its systematic, systematic harmonization, as well as a high degree of success in the tuition of the choristers under his direction, in musicianship, and the institution of a regular rehearsal regimen all of which quickly bore fruit in the quality of the choir's music making and its appreciation by the members of the congregation. In 1931, marking his jubilee in the role, Yeshurun published a selection of his harmonizations of some of the congregation's traditional melodies, an example of which can be heard in the following recording of the prayer Hashki Benu, Cause Us, Our Father, to Lie Down in Peace, which is sung on the evenings of the three pilgrimage festivals. Hashki Yeshurun's style of choral arrangement, as you just heard, came to define the harmonic sound of the Spanish and Portuguese synagogue repertoire. It contextualizes the traditional liturgical chants, which were usually, until that time, sung in unison. It contextualizes them in a four-part vocal environment straight out of the Victorian hymn book, and there's no doubt that it did much to cement the sound world of this music firmly in the Western classical mold. Further work in completing the harmonization of the congregation's melodies and in the recruitment and training of choristers from within the ranks of the congregation was undertaken by Yeshurun's successor, Jacob Hadida, who served in the post between 1933 and 1937, and then again from 1945 to 1954. He used Yeshurun's published work, together with a mixture of other published sources and his own simple but effective choral arrangements, to create the most complete written canon, if there is such a word, of the congregation's choral chants that had yet been produced up to that time. In a departure from the pedagogical practice of his predecessor, he also taught all his choristers, both young and old, to read and sing from written musical notation, albeit in the form of tonic solfar, do, re, mi, which was a more popular type of notation at that time than it had been in more recent de decades. He is remembered very fondly today by the older members of the choir for the effort, care, and attention that he gave to his singers in group rehearsals and one-on-one -on -one lessons, ensuring that each and every one of them was able to give the, of their very best to contribute to the choir. He is also remembered for the sharp discipline he lost no time in meeting out to those boys who dared to misbehave in rehearsal. These two areas of effort on Haddad's part resulted in arguably the period of highest quality music making for the Congregational Choir during the period of the 20th century. In 1951, Hadida, together with the choir and the then cantor of Bevis Marks Synagogue, Abraham Beniso, who's from Gibraltar, recorded a set of LPs of melodies from the synagogue with Hadida himself playing the harmonium. They provide a good overview of Hadida's more direct harmonic style and the gusto with which he directed his ensemble, as in the following recording of El Nora Alila, a prayer used to open the final service on the Day of Atonement as the sun sinks low in the west.
By the way, in case anyone was wondering, the soprano singers on the recording there were actually men, adult men, singing in falsetto. Turning back to the Ashkenazi community, in the first part of the 19th century, the great synagogue had been subject to similar demands for reform, as had their Sephardi brethren, but in their case, the suggestion of dispensing with the old system of cantor, mashorer, and bassista in favor of a full choir was hampered by opposition to change on the part of the synagogue's aging chief rabbi, Solomon Herschel, who had been in post since 1802. Amongst other issues, Herschel had strong objections to the use of what he termed the book of strokes, meaning written musical notation on the part of any efficiency of the service. In the meantime, the old vocal trio system persisted. In 1827, a new cantor was appointed to the pulpit in the person of Binom Elias from Germany. He brought with him his own Meshorer, the 14-year-old Julius Lazarus Mombach, whose musical career at the synagogue significantly outlasted that of his mute master Elias. Elias had to retire only two years later after catching a chill which ruined his singing voice. Mombach, on the other hand, remained in his position and worked with Elias' successor as cantor, Solomon Asher. By 1841, the health of the 79-year-old Rabbi Herschel was in significant decline, following a fall the previous year in which he had fractured his thigh, and he had since been almost entirely confined to his house. Perhaps it was his effective ex exclusion from the day-to-day -day life of the synagogue which motivated those who desired the formation of a formal choir to go ahead anyway and have one formed despite the rabbi's objections. And although Herschel did not pass away until the following year, the choir came into existence in 1841 under the leadership of Mombach, who remained in post until his death in 1880. By the 1860s, he was dividing his time between the Great Synagogue and the New Synagogue in Great St. Helens Street, opened 1838. His duties on a Sabbath morning began at the new synagogue, and he would walk over to the great partway through the morning, where the congregation reportedly would rise in his honor as he entered. I'm not sure there are that many choir masters of synagogues who are held in quite that esteem nowadays, but it's a sign of the times. Mombach composed a large body of choral repertoire for the synagogue, which joined the ranks of the new synagogue choral style, pioneered by his counterparts on the European continent, Solomon Zoltzer, and later Louis Lewandowski, in coming to define the sound world of the Western Ashkenazi services as they are still practiced down to the present day in the UK and the Commonwealth. Like Zoltzer, Mombach's works paid due care and attention to the traditional nusach and melodies of the prayer services, whilst treating them in a quintessentially Western harmonic style of arrangement, which would probably have been regarded at the time as a legitimate way of updating the older musical traditions. Nonetheless, in Mombach's case, this process is carried out with evident respect and high regard for the source material. Mombach's original compositions combine a directness of style with an innate singability, influenced by German folk music. A perfect example is his setting of Avas Olam, Everlasting Love, which is sung to this day in many member synagogues of the United Synagogue on the evening service of festivals.
These choral innovations at both Bevis Marx and the Great Synagogue notwithstanding, as I've already noted, the modest reforms introduced were insufficient to satisfy those who demanded them. And on the 15th of April, 1840, a formal breakaway congregation came into being, founded by 18 members of the Bevis Marx Synagogue and a handful of Ashkenazim, mostly from the Great Synagogue. This new congregation was to be called the West London Synagogue of British Jews. West London, since it was to, to be located in that area, far closer to the homes of most of its wealthy founders than the city of London. And British Jews, because the reformers intended to do away with what they regarded as the outdated distinction between Sephardi and Ashkenazi, the two primary historic strands of the religion. A new prayer book was created for the nascent congregation, blending elements of Sephardi and Ashkenazi liturgy with newly composed prayers. As may well be imagined, music, and specifically choral music, played a central role in the services of the new synagogue from the outset. Early contributions to its new liturgical music came from Charles Kensington Salomon, founder member of the synagogue, composer, pianist, and writer, who wrote no less than 124 settings for the Reformed liturgy. In 1859, the West London Synagogue appointed a non-Jewish organist, Charles Garland Verinder, who shortly thereafter took over the post of choirmaster in addition. Verinder remained in post for some 45 years, during which time he had a decisive impact on the musical repertoire of the Reformed Synagogue and, by extension, upon the wider musical life of Anglo Jewry. By bringing his background in Anglican choral music to bear on the Jewish liturgy, in 1880, Verinder, in collaboration with Salomon, published a large collection of items from the choral repertoire of the West London Synagogue, including, along with significant numbers of his own compositions, a number of harmonizations of the so-called traditional melodies of the Spanish and Portuguese synagogue, which were evidently, evidently still very much in common currency in the newer congregation. Perhaps Verinda's best-known original composition, which has achieved a lasting place in the repertoire of many Orthodox synagogues across the UK, in addition to the reform, is his touching setting of Psalm 121, S-R-N-I, I lift mine eyes unto the mountains, whence cometh my help. This musical collection from the West London Synagogue had a wide impact on Jewish congregations in the UK, including on its parent synagogues of the Orthodox strand, and this is evident in a number of ways. A significant number of the musical settings of Verinda, Salomon, Edward Hart, an early choir master of the West London, and Simon Whaley, a warden of the West London, around the time of its move to its current purpose-built premises in Upper Barclay Street in 1870, all found their way into the choral repertoire of the Spanish and Portuguese congregation and are still in use up to the present day. There is evidence that several of these were introduced by choirmaster Jacob Hadider, both the original compositions and the harmonizations of the traditional Sephardi melodies, but there's every likelihood that they were sung during the tenure of Yeshua and his predecessor. Melodies from the congregation, from the collection, were also prevalent in a publication produced by the United Synagogue, formed by Act of Parliament in 1870 as a union of the Great Synagogue and four other large Ashkenazi synagogues in London. This musical collection originally appeared in 1889 as a handbook of synagogue music for congregational singing, and then in a significantly expanded form in 1899 as Kol Rinov Soda, 
The Voice of Prayer and Praise, a handbook of synagogue music for congregational singing. This book has achieved lasting popularity worldwide up to the present day in synagogues which still follow the choral Western Ashkenazi tradition and is universally known as the Blue Book after the color of its binding. It was edited by David M. Davis, we see here on the left in the mortarboard, who was choir master at the New West End Synagogue, and by Francis Lyon Cohen on the right, who was then minister of the Borough New Synagogue. And its stated purpose was twofold. Firstly, to provide a comprehensive reference book of choral settings and compositions for the use of choirs in constituents of the United Synagogue, such that the desired aim of the choir committee, viz. the improvement of the service of song, might be achieved by virtue of the instruction of the choruses by note and not by ear. Secondly, it was explicitly intended that the congregants also make use of the book during the synagogue services to enable them to follow along with the music and join in with the choir. The following is quoted from the preface to the book. It will be found profitable for the congregants to use the volume in synagogue as a companion to the Siddur, the daily prayer book, and Machzor, festival prayer book, since it provides for every choral or congregational occasion throughout the Jewish year, often with alternative settings. Indeed, the music as well as the text must necessarily be in the hands of every worshipper who would wish to take a seemly part in the singing. The book's preface further advised that local lists of the items to be sung in individual synagogues on regular Sabbaths be drawn up, and a copy pasted in the book of each chorister and cooperating congregant. How successful the Blue Book was in achieving the second aim is a matter for debate, since the choristers themselves seem to have been in the practice of being taught by ear rather than being able to read written musical notation, it seems unlikely that the average congregant would have had more success in deciphering the contents of the volume, much less being able to sight-read the music quickly enough to join in with the choir in real time. But so far as the first aim goes, the book was an unqualified success. It contains selections from a variety of composers, most notably Mombach, around whose music the preface notes that much of Anglo-Jewish hymnody had been built up. As well as D.M. Davis, the editor of the collection, Marcus Hast, cantor of the Great Synagogue, Chaim Vassatzug, late cantor of the North London Synagogue, whose collection of synagogue compositions had been published in London in 1878, and a large selection from the collection of the West London Reform Synagogue. Also included were a significant number of so-called traditional chants and congregational responses arranged by Francis Lyon Cohen, and a selection of traditional melodies from the Spanish and Portuguese congregation for hymns which in Ashkenazi congregations were traditionally sung antiphonally. That means first one and then the other between the cantor and the congregation. But which the preface of the book noted may now be with advantage chanted in accordance with the more devotional use of the Sephardim, in which such essentially congregational passages are sung right through by the entire assembly. In addition to its own stated aims, the Blue Book may have been in some respects a reaction to the publication of the West London Synagogue Collection. And no doubt the United Synagogue Choir Committee in its discussions, which culminated in the Blue Book's publication, would have taken note of the less-than-professional state of its own choirs when compared to the quality of the professional ensemble at the West London under the much-admired guidance of Verinda. There may also have been another pressing reason for the publication of a book of orthodox choral synagogue works in the unadulterated Western European classical style in the last two decades of the 19th century. And this was a demographic shift which was to have an irreversible effect upon the cultural and religious character of Anglo-Jewry. The wave of anti-Jewish pogroms, which swept southwestern imperial Russia between 1881 and 1884 in the wake of the assassination, assassination of Tsar Alexander II, marked a watershed moment in the long history of Eastern European Jewry. For many Jews, it was a wake-up call, which led them to reassess their prospects and their perceptions of their status within the Russian Empire. And large numbers began to emigrate, particularly to the United States, but significant numbers also to the UK. Those who arrived in London found themselves quite out of place 
both culturally and religiously, with the existing Jewish communities of the metropolis. Quite apart from the generally low level of observance of Jewish law in the established community, as compared to the higher level generally prevalent amongst the new arrivals, the style of the synagogue service in London would have been totally alien to a Jew from the Pale of Settlement. Complicated choral works by the likes of Zulzer, Mombach, and Lewandowski were something simply never heard by a Jew used to praying in a crowded shtibel with services chanted in a fervent but informal style by a local prayer leader. And many who arrived at a choral service in the great synagogue or the new synagogue must have wondered whether they'd entered the church by mistake. The cavernous cathedral-like architecture of the large London synagogues would only have added to this impression. The immediate and prevalent response to this clash of cultures was for the immigrant Jews to form their own communities and small synagogues along lines more familiar to them, and this was indeed done in great numbers throughout the East End of London. However, for the existing communities, who were generally rich in monetary wealth but poor in terms of Jewish knowledge and education, it was becoming more difficult to recruit cantors with the musical and vocal skills necessary to maintain the traditional Western Ashkenazi musical structure of their services. One obvious solution was for those communities to recruit cantors from amongst their Eastern European brethren, whose ranks included many highly skilled and vocally gifted cantors. But this solution brought its own set of problems, because as I've noted previously, the art of the European, the Eastern European cantor is quite unlike that of his Western European counterpart. One audio sample will speak a thousand words to demonstrate this difference. The following is a recording by Cantor Zavulin Kvartin, born in 1874 in Khonorod in Russia, of the prayer Hanashoma Loch, the soul is yours and the body yours, which is taken from the penitential Salichas prayers recited before the Jewish New Year. I'm going to play this in a minute. Note the heavy use of the Ahavarabha mode, which is one of these non-Western, Eastern European Nusach modes of the Ashkenazic prayer. Also note the, vocal, the virtuoso vocal acrobatics and the operatic style high notes and the intense repetition of a single phrase of text, all of which are common features of the Eastern European cantorial art. <laughs> Now, whilst that example might seem extreme, I hope you'll be left in no doubt how great the difference is between the two schools of Ashkenazi cantorial art and how incongruous a musical style like that would have seemed in the rarefied confines of one of London's cathedral synagogues with a congregation more used to hearing the likes of Mombach and Verinda. Nevertheless, no community is an island, and it wouldn't be too long before the Eastern style started to make its presence felt even in the most musically conservative of the English synagogues, helped, no doubt, by the increasingly diverse membership of those synagogues as they accepted members from the immigrant community. The case can be put very clearly by looking at the 1913 appointment of Abraham Katz to the position of cantor of the great synagogue. The following account is written by Hermann Meyerovich, who acceded to the same pulpit in 1921. He writes... The election of the Reverend Mr. Katz to the readership of the Great Synagogue followed a lively contest in which the only opposing candidate was Chazan Cantor, David Steinberg of Odessa, Russia. 
It was, however, not a struggle of two equal, of two equal candidates, but a conflict between two schools of thought. The so-called foreign elements in the congregation fought keenly for Steinberg, who was unquestionably a cousin of great attainments. He seemed, as it were, to take heaven and the congregation by storm. Technically, no doubt, a remarkable feat, but ethically and aesthetically a little startling to people born and educated in this country. To these people, Steinberg's service appeared to be nothing more than artistic performance. Mr. Katz, on the other hand, although born and brought up in Russia, had, through holding positions in Tirnau near Vienna and at Amsterdam, acquired the Western polish, which he skillfully combined with the touching pathos and exuberance of Russia, with which he so much impressed the then honorary officers of the great synagogue. So thus we see the ways in which the liturgical music of anglo jewry began very gradually to develop into the fusion of Western and Eastern styles, which is still seen today. Mayerovich writes on, it must be acknowledged that a great deal of Katz's success was due to the cooperation he had of that master of melody and contrapoint, Mr. Samuel Alman, then choir master at the great synagogue. Although Mr. Alman himself admitted to a found in Katz an admirable interpreter of his music, which he specially wrote for the great synagogue. As a result of his collaboration of Chazan and Choir, the services at Great Synagogue reached a musical standard I never heard anywhere else, and no wonder it attracted such large congregations. So Meyerovich has helpfully introduced for me the next important figure who has to be mentioned in a history such as this. Samuel Alman was born in 1877 in Sobolevka in Russia. He studied music in the Odessa and Kishinev conservatories and served for a time as a musician in the Russian army. But as with so many others, it was witnessing the scenes of savagery during the infamous Kishinev pogrom of 1903, which convinced him that he had no future in Russia. He duly moved to London, continuing his studies at the Guildhall School of Music, and took up the post of choir master first at Dalston Synagogue, then later at the Great Synagogue, as we heard, and finally in 1916 at Hampstead Synagogue. His long and fruitful career encompassed many diverse musical activities, including choral societies, chamber music, theater, and even a grand Yiddish opera. But he is certainly best remembered for his contribution to synagogue choral music. As a result of his early exposure to music in Russia, he was deeply influenced by the Eastern European School of Cantorial Art, but his Western training in musical theory enabled him to develop his own style of composition, an arrangement for the English synagogue, whereby authentic Eastern-style solo vocal lines were harmonized in a sensitive way without destroying the essential character of the cantorial elements. Here is an extract from one of Alman's most famous compositions, Hinani, the introduction to performing the commandment of counting the Omer, the days between the festivals of Passover and Pentecost. <laughs> In 1933, Alman was invited by the United Synagogue to prepare a new edition of the Blue Book, which included a large supplemental selection of his own compositions and arrangements. It is in this version that the book continues to be used today by the handful of Ashkenazi synagogues in the UK which still have choirs. However, the trend since the latter part of the 20th century has been for progressively decreasing formality in the services. The share of Anglo-Jewish families who are members of the United Synagogue 
has dropped significantly to be replaced by an increased share for those more conservative religious organizations which represent the heirs to the Eastern European immigration of which we've already spoken, known colloquially as Litvish, Lithuanian community. Their services favor an absolute minimum of melody, albeit with a strict adherence to the principles of Nusach for the various different occasions of the Jewish year. <clears throat> but with great, but great vocal skill and musical talent beyond the accurate basic rendition of the Nusach is not generally valued except on the odd special occasion. Those elements of congregational song which have crept in have tended to come not from the Western tradition, which is even to this day regarded in these communities as somewhat foreign, but rather from the tradition of Hasidic song. The Hasidic community has represented an increasing proportion of the conservative Orthodox population in the UK since the Hungarian uprising of 1956 led to an influx of especially Satmar Hasidic Jews fleeing hardship under Soviet rule. Constraints of time don't permit me to make more than a brief mention here of their significant musical contribution to synagogue song, but suffice to say that it has injected an element of joyous and upbeat congregational participation in the otherwise musically plain Litvish service. Within the United Synagogue itself, too, the tendency has been to eschew the formality of a cantor and choir, again except on special occasions, and in a handful of synagogues of a more conservative nature, in favor of lay service leaders and participatory music of a more modern character. A similar story can be told in regard to the reform movement. Meanwhile, the Spanish and Portuguese congregation has generally been more successful in maintaining the unique musical character of its services, and especially their choral element. It, too, faced a changing demographic in the cultural background of Sephardi Jews in the UK in the middle of the 20th century, particularly during the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, as successive waves of Jewish immigrants arrived in the UK from Iraq, Egypt, Morocco, and other Arab lands. Initially, many of these new arrivals joined the Spanish and Portuguese congregation as being the only Sephardi congregation in the UK at that time, even though the Western-style services must have seemed absolutely alien to them, as coming as they did from communities where the music was essentially Arabic in character. It utilizes a complex system of modes and tonalities based on makam. Later on, the trend tended to be that those, uh, those immigrants who were not willing to subsume their own tradition in favor of the Spanish and Portuguese one formed their own smaller congregations, of which there are a number scattered across different areas of London, each of which maintains its own tradi the tradition of its own ancestral community, whilst others who were happy to adopt the Spanish and Portuguese tradition remain members there, with the synagogue providing occasional alternative services for them in their own tradition, especially on the high holidays. In this way, the Spanish and Portuguese congregation has largely avoided what its members might regard as any adulteration of its historical musical traditions by foreign elements, with a tiny handful of exceptions. The most notable of these occurs on the Day of Atonement, during the Silichot, penitential prayers, which are recited several times during the day. In the middle of the service, as the cantor reaches the words Adon Hasirichot, Master of Forgiveness, the congregation invariably interrupts the flow of his traditional chant with the following melody taken straight from the Syrian Yerushalmi tradition. <laughs> I hope my audience will forgive me if I end this lecture with an historical item not presented in, stri in strictly chronological order. One of the great musical figures in the history of Anglo Jewry, whom I haven't yet mentioned, is Reverend David Aaron de Sola, who was born in Amsterdam and appointed, choir, uh, appointed cantor at Bevis Marks in 1818. In addition to his many scholarly achievements and his editions of both the Sephardi and Ashkenazi prayer books, 
He published in 1857 a collection of notated melodies from the Spanish and Portuguese liturgical tradition. This volume is one of the earliest systematic publications of a Jewish musical tradition. And whilst de Solo's scholarly essay in the book, claiming extreme antiquity for all of the melodies presented therein, has raised a few eyebrows among modern musicologists, his one original composed melody presented in the volume, a tune for the poem Adon Olam, Master of the Universe, which closes the morning service on Sabbaths and festivals, has gained enduring popularity. It was later edited by Alman and included in his edition of the Blue Book, and has since become a favorite with Jewish congregations of all hues, Sephardi and Ashkenazi, Orthodox and non-Orthodox, across the entire globe. It is perhaps, therefore, a fitting conclusion to this very brief survey of the music of a community which, for all its variety and different forms, politics and aesthetics, has remained a consistent and influential part of this city's religious and cultural life for the last 365 years. much for uh, a fascinating and really beautiful lecture as well. Um, we do have a few questions from the online audience, mm -hmm. and we have a little time for these now. <clears throat> There's some interest in instrumentation. Uh, the first question is in three parts, and it's just um, one after the other. Was a cappella choral singing always the norm in London, and is it now? If not, what is the typical instrumentation accompanying group singing? And how has this instrumentation changed since the 19th century? Okay. So it's a big question. Yes, right. Uh, so in answer to the first part of the question, was it, was it the norm to have a cappella um, singing? Generally, yes, in the orthodox tradition. Um, that is because in synagogue, in orthodox synagogues, uh, it's forbidden to use instrumental accompaniment on the sort of big services, um, that is Sabbath mornings, you know, Sabbath festivals, high holy days, which is when you tend to get the biggest attendance anyway. So, um, and there's a debate as to whether it's allowed or not allowed on weekday services, but it's not really relevant because the time when people would want it is on holy days. So therefore, because of that rule, uh, um, that is, um, that it's, 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 it's the practice to, um, to have a cappella singing. Um, it, it was the practice, there is some evidence that prior to the sort of early 19th century, um, there was some instrumental accompaniment in some Orthodox congregations, and that would have been instruments played by non-Jews because it's the, the Jewish people who are not allowed to play the instruments on the holy days, whereas non-Jews are allowed to. So that was the case. Um, in, the, in the 19th century, you've, you've referred to the... Uh, and, and as to what those instruments were, um, I think if we're talking about... Uh, it would be speculation on my part, but you're talking about sort of the 18th century. It would have been instruments um, of, you know, that were commonplace in the 18th century, uh, uh, chamber instruments, one assumes. Um, the organ really became to be associated with the Reform congregation, specifically, well, in Europe, the Reform congregations in mostly Germany um, and other areas of, of Europe. Uh, and here in the UK, it was the West London Synagogue, which had an, an organ right from the, from the outset. 
um, because the organ came therefore to be associated with, with, uh, with the reform movement, it then tended to be eschewed as well by the orthodox congregations who anyway became more conservative and didn't really, it wasn't, weren't so happy anymore with the idea of the, of, the, of the instruments being played at all, even if it was by a non-Jew. So I wonder, I wonder if that answers the second part. Um, and how has it changed since the, since the 19th century? Um, not very much, uh, um, in, in the sense that the, the orthodox synagogues now no longer have any, any instrumental accompaniment at all, except maybe occasionally for a, for a, a wedding on a weekday, they might have a, 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 um, some kind of harmonium or something like that, or in the modern day, it would be an electronic organ. Um, and the reform synagogues also tend, by and large, to have stuck with the organ, the pipe organ, because it's just, it's a very all-purpose instrument which, which can be used to, as you, as you know, in a number of, you can make all sorts of different types of sound with it, and therefore it's very versatile. And there may be, again, on odd special occasions, they might bring in, they might bring out other instruments, but generally, by and large, it's the organ. Um, I should say, in... In more recent decades, it also become, in the reform congregations, quite common to have guitars. That's more linked to a kind of um, increasing informality of the services. So rather than having the sort of grand pipe organ, it's a more kind of, and, and the big space with all the pews and everything, they tend to want to do it in a smaller scale space, a more intimate style service, and therefore with sort of handheld guitar accompaniment instead of any other instruments. So that's also quite common nowadays. Um, was there any perceived impropriety or conflict of interest for an early cantor such as Leone, who also engaged in secular music? Um, yes and no. Um, the conflict of interest in those days would have been mostly that they didn't that his synagogue didn't want him, um, they wanted his loyalty to stay with them. So they didn't want him going off to sing in the opera on a Friday night when they needed him to be in synagogue. Um, so uh, um, and so, so they, they wrote it into his contract, and it was noted in the press at the time that these new operas, of which Leone was a, a big part of the success of them, were never performed on Friday nights because... Uh, because they didn't, because the only wasn't available, because he was um, officiating in synagogue at that time, and the same would have happened on Saturday mornings. But anyway, there, there anyway, there are no, uh, um, there, there generally we don't have opera performances on Saturday mornings. Um, so that would have been the, more their concern. There wasn't really, they weren't really so bothered about other things. It is possible to be an opera singer and not break any Jewish laws. There was one story of, I think, one cantor who was also an opera singer, I think Braham, uh, uh, John Braham, who, who was spotted on a Sabbath singing in the opera. That in itself wasn't, wasn't the worst problem, but he was carrying a candle, as, a lit candle as part of his, his business on stage. And um, again, Orthodox Jews are not allowed on Sabbaths to, to mess around with fire, pick it up, move it around, light new fires, that kind of thing. So he was breaking the Sabbath by doing that, and he got some kind of cat call from someone in the audience who, 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 who took him to task. But you have to wonder why that guy was in the audience instead of in synagogue. So apart from those, not really any conflict, no. Can people visit synagogues to hear such singing if they are not Jewish? Uh, yes, uh, well, in the, in the COVID era, of course, one has to book. But discounting that, yes, it's, um, some synagogues require, have sort of security requirements. So it's always best to check with the, with the, you know, with the office in advance, e send an email in, I'd like to attend. And as long as you know, they know that you're coming, it's absolutely fine. The question is more, where would you find a choral service nowadays because there's so few um, synagogues that have them. So you're probably looking at... Um, New West End synagogues in Bayswater. Um, occasionally, um, well, my synagogue is in Mill Hill, sometimes in Edgware, and a few other bits and pieces. Probably worth contacting me directly to find out where and when. Um, one last question, and I think this is a bit of a fact check. Can I, uh, fascinating lecture, thank you. Can I check, did you say that Francis Lyon Cohen arranged the traditional music in the handbook of synagogue music? Yes, uh, okay. the, the, what are called the traditional, um, it, yes, it's written in the book that he arranged the, 
the, the sort of responses, like the, the sort of Nusach-related bits, yes. Elliot, thank you very much for, um, one, as I said, a wonderful lecture and for your generosity in spending time on some questions. And thank you to our online audience for, for joining us this afternoon. Please do come back this evening and join us for a lecture from Alex Edmonds, our professor of business, on nudging society to better decisions. Good afternoon. <laughs>